Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Hello, this is Matt Shaw for the Tolkien Professor and my fellow Silmarillionaires. This is episode 14, Knock Knock Morgoth, and covers chapter 13 of The Return of the Noldor. In this episode, Feanor courts death and is rewarded by Gothmog, but not before dooming the Noldor in general, and his family in particular, to ages of tragedy and torment. However, it should be noted that the rare successful party is pulled off. In this session, we explore the sometimes subtle distinctions between craft and sub-creation, revisit Fingolfin's awesomeness, and note the introduction of Dragon 1.0 in the form of Glauron. This episode is packed, so let's get to it. Okay, good evening. Let's see, uh, uh, Laura, let's actually address your last question first here, because uh, I think that is a, it is a perfectly legitimate observation. Yeah, just reading this chapter, it, it seems like, you know, we're just going at a breakneck pace through all these events, any, any one of which could be an entire chapter, and some of which could be an entire book. And um, I, I think that's where a lot of people have problems with the Silmarillion because it's everything is just so packed in and just going at such breakneck speed. So that's what really struck me when reading this. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, and I, I, so I agree with you. This chapter does strike me more in that way than most of the chapters that we've read. Um, certainly, I mean, you think about just like a brief list of only the more significant things that happen in this chapter. I mean, you get the death of Feanor, you get the, the arrival of Fingolfin and the troops, and the sort of, you know, the standoff around the lake. You get the capture of Mithros and his rescue by Fingon, which is such a, I think, such a really big and far-reaching story uh, in, in Tolkien's whole work. You get the you get two great battles. Uh, you get the founding of Nargothrond and Gondolin. Uh, it's, yeah, I mean, it just keeps going and going. Uh, it was actually... Um, as I was rereading this chapter, well, especially as I was listening to it uh, this morning, uh, I kept sort of forgetting where it ended and 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 was I kept expecting it to end and then, <laughs> and then it never did. Right, and as Mike points out, dragons too. Yeah, Glaurung shows up too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's uh, it's really, truly really pretty amazing. Um, so yeah, there's certainly uh, there's certainly plenty to talk about tonight. Um, so let's. Uh, I want to try to be sort of as orderly as possible under the circumstances and see if we can hit on uh, on, on, a, on a bunch of these major things, not necessarily in order, um, but uh, but let's see if we can kind of keep some of these things straight um, and focus our questions on this. So uh, let's see. Let me start with um, let's 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 start with the death of Fanor because the death of Fanor we've kind of alluded to several times. I think it must have been three different weeks previously in which I have almost talked about the death of Feanor and then said, no, no, we should wait until we get there. So let's, uh, let's, let's finally talk about that. Um, let's see, a couple of you wanted to talk about, let's see, John, I think you were wanting to talk about, uh, Feanor's death in connection with his pride, which is certainly something we've, we've talked about before. So let's, uh, let's, let's definitely think about that. Do you want to, uh, do you want to say something about that, John? Uh, yes. Um, well, going over the chapter, I was reminded of um, an email I got from someone writing their thesis for MythCon talking about the sin of pride, which I felt was quite ingenious. And where I was coming from is at the beginning of the chapter, it seems like 
quite a climactic beginning in, in its sense. Uh, we get the feel that Feanor is rushing headlong to his death. He is basically not being cautious. Uh, Morgoth basically is underestimating the elves. And it seems like here at this one junction, this one point in elven history, we see one of basically the highest and most ruthless leaders um, of basically the Noldor, the sons of Feanor, succumbing solely to the will of basically the magnanimous will of their father here, who is basically absorbed solely in his one objection, basically to overthrow, overthrow the Dark Lord of uh, Engband. So, in a sense, what we now feel here is um, Feanor succumbing solely to his one drive and his one purpose. He isn't stopping. We don't hear him, like, hearkening to any advice at all. And as you were pointing out earlier, the feel of this chapter feels definitely um, accelerated. I, I could easily see the death of Feanor in some, you know, early lay of Valerian being, you know, taken up by several lines in some kind of early, you know, ballad or something like that. It, it seems almost as well to point to uh, Feanor's, you know, infamous skill and in battle later on, his courage, and yet we also see his most negative side. This is, I think, the apex of his true character. On one hand, we see, okay, well, he is, in the end, trying to accomplish his goals, and he's doing so in quite a reckless manner. And yet, on the other end of the, you know, the spectrum of his character here, we see him driven towards what seems to be a frontal assault, which appears to ignite the rest of the, you know, the Sindar into the fight. I mean, you know, we kind of get the sense that the war truly begins to have a different uh, approach, a more offensive approach, as soon as Feanor reaches into the scene. I mean, his entire tactics are completely aggressive. And the root of this aggressiveness, I feel, is basically his pride, his anger, his hate. Um, I believe there's a song by Blind Guardian, a famous uh, yes. band in the album Nightfall of Middle-Earth, The Curse of Feanor, which actually deals with this. Yes, and, that's actually my uh, favorite song on that album, by the way. The Curse yeah, of Feanor. Yeah, yeah, The Curse of Feanor. I love that. I mean, I actually, I recently bought it and I was, I was listening to it. I, I just really enjoyed it. And when I was hearing it, first of all, I was imagining, oh boy, wouldn't it be great to have one of those almost like radio drama snippets right beforehand of the death of Feanor? And second, what I was really trying to picture, especially, and I, I know it's, it's sort of related and unrelated to the topic I originally addressed, was his duel with uh, the Balrogs. And the first thing, I don't know if it's mentioned or not, but Gothmog has to be fighting Feanor. I mean, you know, who else among all the Balrogs? So what we see is a Maya spirit fighting hand-to-hand, -hand probably, with the greatest of the elves. And, I mean, what we understand about Feanor at this point in time is that of all the Noldor, he is basically gifted with basically the greatest skills and yet the greatest, you know, harms born of his own intuition. And his own intuition here is bent directly and solely on basically hacking, destroying, you know, usurping uh, slayers and destroyers, you know, as, Tree, as Treebeard points out, uh, I think in the, uh, in the film version of The Two Towers, I think it's in um, The Fellowship of the Ring in the Tom Bombadil, you know, chapter, um, how this malignant force here, this is Feanor marred at his best, or his worst, really. And yeah. I felt like, you know, it yeah. definitely should be addressed in greater detail. No, definitely. So I mean, I... Yeah, I really agree. I mean, I think that um, the 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 Fanor stuff here. This is a moment I think which is kind of well. 
for me, this is always the encapsulation of Feanor gone bad. Um, you know, everything that we see, everything that we've talked about with Feanor before, uh, his incredible gifts, his incredible power, his pride, um, his determination, his going his own way, you know, him being off. I mean, the, 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 that, that metaphor of him driving the hordes of, 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 well, the remnants of the hordes of Morgoth before him, but sprinting out in front of everybody else. You know, he's on his own. He's, he's head and shoulders, you know, he's beyond everybody else. You know, he's lengths and lengths in front of everybody else. And he is, but he's, he doesn't care. And he's going his own, he's doing his own thing and sticking his neck out. And ultimately his power and his pride are his downfall and bring him into a trap of his own making. Um, and Melkor ensnares him, essentially. Um, that is, at least the Balrogs come out and catch him. Um, but even then, it's not even exactly uh, that he is... He is destroyed by the Balrogs, and he's stricken down by Gothmog. But even then, his, 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 final, his final death um, is, I think, sort of the most essentially... That, that even itself... Um, the passing of his spirit and the collapsing of his body into dust, the passing of his fiery spirit, this sort of the self-destructiveness in the end of the of the fiery spirit of Feanor, uh, you know, whose name remember means spirit of fire. Um, this is uh, this is pretty that 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 image for me is always uh, basically like Feanor Feanor in this in the in in this Feanor in one image Feanor in a nutshell, uh, of course. As Laura points out, everything is in a nutshell in this chapter. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean that, that's um, that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, Brandon, I was just about to say the same thing. Do you want to uh, go ahead and talk about the death of Feanor and and that connection you just mentioned in the chat? Yeah, it seems to me that um, <laughs> there um, you know there are only two examples in the whole canon of people turning into ash, and um, one is famed. Uh, ooh. ooh yeah. You know, what is the kind of parallel there? It seems to be like maybe an unhealthy, you know, um, quest for knowledge and pride and uh, uh, maybe even, you know, uh, sin. And uh, They both have great falls, you know. I don't know if there's a connection there with using the fire to a certain end, not not enough to the sub-creation, you know. You can comment on that, Corey. Yeah, no, I, 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 I really think so. I mean, we're talking about the parallel between Feanor and Saruman here. Um, and the two things are quite striking. It's actually funny. I, I wasn't even thinking of the the disintegration of the bodies, though. Of course, we do get that. Now, what what we get described in uh, Saruman is a kind of like accelerated collapse and decomposition. We don't get that sort of you know, boom, you know, the thing just collapsing into dust as the fiery spirit uh, you know destroys it. Um, it's more a uh, it seems to be more more of an accelerated corruption um, or rotting, but but I agree. I mean, we do get uh, I, I I don't can't think of any other places where we get that happening. Uh, you know, where someone dies and and this sort of spectacular thing spon- spontaneously happens to their bodies. But in addition, the thing which actually suggested that exact same parallel to me that is between Feanor's death and Saruman's death is the smoke. Um, that is, uh, so for so fiery was his spirit that it sped. That as it sped, his body fell to ash and was borne away like smoke. And you'll remember when Saruman dies, you know, sort of the cloud of his spirit rises up and turns towards the west, as if in as if in appeal or supplication. But a wind comes from the west and blows it away. Um, so 
I think that uh, uh, that I think is really interesting, especially what we get immediately after the after the smoke reference of in Feyen- with Feanor too. So with Saruman, what we see there is um, sort of this glimpse of the spiritual drama behind the scenes. His body has perished, but we know, of course, that Saruman is one of the Astari. He is he is a Maya like Gandalf. Uh, who has come to Middle-earth and been incarnated in order to help people, his spirit is, in its death, apparently turning to the West and seeking to return to Valinor, which is where he came from, but then he is rejected, apparently, and that seems to be the significance of the wind that blows out of the West and blows him away. Uh, he has betrayed the West, and there can be no returning for the spirit of Saruman. Now, Feanor, when he falls into 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 ash and his uh, and and the ash is borne away like smoke, we're not told like where the wind is coming from. We don't get the whole like a wind from the west came. It's nothing quite that clear. But what he immediately segues to is, and his likeness has never again appeared in Arda. Neither has his spirit left the halls of Mandos. Um, in other words, there's a kind of banishment there too. We know that elves can eventually uh, receive a new body. They can they can sort of make a new body for their spirit um, once their spirits are finished being cleansed, have finished their time of awaiting in the halls of Mandos. Uh, Fanor is not getting out of the halls of Mandos, um, and his likeness has never uh, again appeared in Arda. That might sound like, and there has never been anybody like him again in Arda, but I don't think that's true. I don't think that that's what that means. His likeness has never appeared again, meaning I think like his like his body, his person, he's not coming back. Feanor is gone um, and isn't going to return. Now, it's not that his spirit has been annihilated. We know that his spirit is in the halls of Mandos and has never left. But I, but that sentence, the end of that sentence, that that I. That smells like a prison sentence to me, or, or to to an actual banishment. And there is a sense of an actual purgatorial nature to the halls of Mandos. Some of the places where Tolkien talks about it, it does sound that uh, the souls in Mandos are sometimes actually being purged of the crimes that they committed uh, during the span of the the, the life of their bodies. Um, and I, I don't know if, uh, you know, Fanor has just uh, got a long road ahead of him there on the purgatorial process or what, or whether he's actually being imprisoned or what. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, that's, that seems to be implied. So that, that's another thing that, that I was then thinking about. Again, we don't get that, the, the direct connection, the sort of wind from the West rejecting Fanor, but, but we do get the, we know what sounds like a prison sentence immediately after that. So, so I, th- I think those two are really interestingly connected. Mike, go ahead. Very much like the, uh, when we do these comparisons between the Silmarillion and the other, uh, other works of Tolkien, I, I was thinking of one comparison between uh, Silmarillion and The Hobbit, and I was thinking about the death of Feanor as compared to the death of Thorin Oakenshield in The Hobbit, and I was thinking about, okay, here were two mortally wounded, sort of obsessed characters, and to sort of talk about it in gambling terms, Thorin, at, at the end, sort of walks away from the table and walks away from the game and says, this is a game you can't win, and repents, and ends up saying, I'm now going to go to the halls of my fathers. Whereas Feanor doubles down. <laughs> he just, he pushes it to the very end. There is no repentance. I mean, it's to the very end. He's just completely obsessed. And I think that, that ties in with what you just, the point you just made about how 
he's not headed for the the halls of his fathers he's headed for some sort of purgatory but i i was just thinking of those two characters at their ends yeah no i i think that's a really good comparison too it's certainly one um one that really by contrast i do think really emphasizes the important thing that we can see here i mean we can see this even before he's before he's stricken down um you know, one of my favorite sentences from the first of our two paragraphs on the death of Feanor um, is uh, when he's chasing after the orcs, seeking, you know, hoping that he can find Morgoth himself. Nothing did he know of Angband or the great strength of defense that Morgoth had so swiftly prepared. But even had he known it, it but even had he known, it would not have deterred him, for he was Fey, consumed by the flame of his own wrath. Um, and we can see, I think, that same sort of impulse. He had no idea when he's trying, I mean, he seems to be assuming that, you know, he's catching Morgoth on the hop and he's going to, he's going to follow these orcs back and Morgoth's going to be what, like sitting in an open camp? He's, he's, he's thinking, and he has no idea that what he's charging towards is this almost impregnable fortress. But then there's that wonderful moment. And if he had known, he, he wouldn't have cared. He still would have charged single-handedly against the nearly impregnable fortress. And you can see that same kind of, uh, just, toweringly arrogant stubbornness at the end there on his deathbed. And as you say, Mike, exactly contrary to Thorin Oakenshield. Death, or the prospect of imminent death, gives Thorin clearly a new perspective. As he, as he, Thorin, explicitly says there, you know, since he is now going to a place that is in death where he can't bring his treasure with him and the treasure isn't going to do him any good, he can now distance himself from that and he can now see what's really important and he can see things from a different perspective. You might think that Feanor could, would have a similar moment. Now that, now that I'm going to perish, now that I'm going, you know, to the halls of Mandos, you know, now I can see, you know, wow, really, uh, I've done a lot of really bad things and, uh, this is all really not working out. And, but, but no, as you say, he doubles down. Um, he knew with the foreknowledge of death that no power of the Noldor would ever overthrow them. So this is not just like, I see that I'm not going to be able to achieve anything because I'm going to die. I know for sure that nobody, that this whole expedition that I have led is 100% guaranteed to be fruitless. And yet, he's still not going to turn away. He's still not going to change his perspective. But he cursed the name of Morgoth thrice and laid it upon his sons to hold to their oath and to avenge their father. I mean, those two things juxtaposed like that are almost unbelievable. With the foreknowledge of death, he knows for a fact nobody can possibly conquer Morgoth. So what do you do as a consequence of that? Make your sons swear that they'll keep tr keep battering themselves against this absolutely impossible task for the rest of their lives. Um, great job, Dad. That's fantastic. Um, so no, I mean, it's it's uh, it really is. You you can see Feanor uh, going out, Mike, as you say, completely unrepentant. Um, uh, I, it's just um, I, I really really pretty really pretty unbelievable. I think. Um, any other uh, thoughts on Feanor's uh, death here before we uh, before we move on to one of our other fifteen topics to discuss in this chapter? Okay, um, Jordan, you wanted to uh, talk about feasts. Uh, yeah, I just want to point out that when Fingolfin throws a feast, nothing goes wrong for the only time in history of the book. 
I should have known that this is this was going to be a Fingolfin-centered uh, topic, though it didn't seem like it at first. Yes, yes, you're right. And I do think that that is kind of interesting, that this moment is just about the only peaceful celebration we're going to see. Um, yes, they all get together, and they throw a big party, and they have a big celebration, and no calamity occurs. Um, this now makes us uh, uh, one for two on the big celebrations, uh, of course, the darkening of Valinor happened during this great time of festival, and we will see several times of festival go tragically awry later on. Um, but uh, yes, 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 Jordan, it is true. On Finn Colfin's watch, uh, festivals happen peacefully. Um, but, and that moment, I think, is, is one, certainly in the middle of the more tumultuous events of this chapter, um, that, that feast, I think, might be uh, kind of overlookable or, or uh, you know, it, it might be easy to kind of glance past it. But I do think that that's a really that that's a really important moment because we can see um, we can see the way the, the way that everyone not only that everyone is coming together. This is sort of the final um, the final affirmation of the uh, of the the reunion of the Noldor um, and the forgiveness of Fingolfin and his people of the sons of Fanor. Um, but also the way that, you know, you get, you get, you get Kierden coming up, you get the couple of people coming out from, from Doriath, um, which is, you know, which is also sort of a very good indication of sort of where things are going and, and where things are. We can see the tension there already, even though Thingol doesn't yet have any idea, uh, that the kinslaying has happened. Um, but yes, Merith Adarthad. The feast of reuniting um, is, I think, a really, a really crucial thing. We can see here the reuniting of the elves. This is essentially this is like the establishment of Beleriand. Now, um, I think you know this is really the moment where we can say, okay, the elven kingdoms in Beleriand are now established, and in some sense, this is the apex. You know, as, as, once once Gondolin and, and Nargothrond are formed. It's never going to get any better than this. This is this is the this is the high point uh, in the history of Beleriand, and it is all a long downhill stretch from here. Um, but uh, but yes, yeah, so th- this is uh, this is th- that's therefore I think an interesting thing to notice. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, okay, let's see. We're actually uh, let's pause for a second to talk. There have been a couple sort of smaller vocabulary. Uh, and terminology questions. Let's let's touch on those before we get to some of the other bigger events. Um, Matt, you had a question about craft. Yeah, the way that um, the word craft used, it seems to have a lot of weight, significance. It kind of reminds me of um, Tolkien's of bliss and grace. In other, in, in the sense that they seem to mean much more than the, they do on the surface. Um, you get the idea that, that craft doesn't just mean uh, extreme skill in making things it, it it goes way beyond that yeah and that's, can you can you can you give an example of where you're of where you're thinking of uh of where it's used um yes well, uh, it's on page 113 in my edition in uh the first pair i mean the paragraph at the top and uh um these were learning uh learning their craft skills from the elves and um i'm not sure how to pronounce that Carinther? Carinther? Carinther, yeah Character. Yes. yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, we have the unlovely. Of course, it, had, it also has that lovely ironic. Yes, <laughs> I was going to mention another another diss by the elves on the dwarves. <laughs> yep, yeah, yeah. Caranthir, yeah. I think uh, he's not the most. In the end, yeah. he's not the most and harmful. I, I, 
But he's the biggest jerk of the Sons of Feanor. There's really no questions about that. Um, yeah, yeah. So let's 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 read that sentence. And that's uh, saying something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's a tough crowd. Um, okay, so we talk about Caranthir. Uh, Caranthir was haughty and scarce concealed his scorn for the unloveliness of the Nogrim, and his people followed their lord. Nevertheless, since both peoples feared and hated Morgoth, they made alliance, and had of it great profit, for the Naugrim learned many secrets of craft in those days, so that the smiths and masons of Nogrod and Belagast became renowned among their kin, and when the dwarves began again to journey into Beleriand, all the traffic of the dwarf mines passed first through the hands of Caranthir, and thus great riches came to him. Um, secrets of craft, yeah. Um, it's, you know, certainly, I mean, we're talking about craftsmanship, and it's a, it's a, um, but I agree with you, it's a word that's being used in a broad kind of way. Um, you know, there's a, there's a sort of a, a very general, I don't know, like stuff related to Aule sense of, of, of the word here, you know, that, that, that the secrets of craft that they learned and the, the generality with which the word craft is being used here. Um, and I, one thing that I would, that I think is really kind of interesting here, we, we, we get references to the craftsmanship of the dwarves, um, but it, I think it's kind of interesting that we don't, they don't seem to be sort of, I mean, they're, they're makers. Um, I'm pausing because I'm not trying to make sure that what I'm going to say is quite fair. But there doesn't seem to be quite as much emphasis on the dwarves as sub-creators as there is on the elves. Um, that they they make great works. Um, but I mean, like, for instance, here, you know, thinking of, thinking, uh, you know, since we're on the subject of dwarven craftsmanship, uh, thinking of the Nauglamir, yet another major thing just kind of tossed off in the middle of this chapter in one paragraph or a few sentences. The Nauglamir, the necklace of the dwarves, um, that was, that was made for, for Finrod, um, thinking of the relationship, um, thinking of the relationship between the elven, or the sort of com- comparison and contrast between elven craft and dwarvish craft, um, Finrod has brought with him all of these gems from Valinor. He brought more gems with him than anybody else. And we, we, we read about the gems of the Noldor, how gems were the big innovation of the Noldor. Even Aule hadn't thought of, of gems and gem cutting. And the Noldor were producing these gems and making these gems. And, of course, the, Sil- the Silmarils were, were, were just the, the greatest example of these. Now, um, here's Finrod with a whole pile of Valinorian gems, those Noldoran gems. And he brings them to the dwarves, and the dwarves make what we're told this is the highest piece of craftsmanship. This is this is dwarven craft at its highest point. Um, this for the this is like the Silmarils for the dwarves, um, and the but what it is is they're taking these Noldoran gems and they're forming them into a necklace. Now, I mean, the necklace is clearly itself magical, and it it, it is clearly you know it is it, it is a wondrous thing. But when you compare the Nauglifring as a work of craft to the gems themselves as works of craft, as the Noldor's work of craft, or or sort of to the Silmarils, um, I think you we, you can see some parallels. But at the same time, I think that there's uh, there's there's I think a really interesting difference there. Brandon, what do you think? I thought that um, Sauron, if I'm not mistaken, reached the elves because he taught them craftsmanship, and in fact, that's how the Nine Rings created. Through he was the person who created him was sort of an apprentice of someone maybe someone who is an apprentice of Sauron. Yeah, yeah, Sauron is. Um, he does he does make the nine rings though he is working with them. Um, so I mean, this is sort of looking forward to. We'll get some discussion of this, of course, uh, at the very end uh, in our very last week when we look at the Third Age. Um, 
at the forging of the rings of power by Celebrimbor, uh, Feanor's grandson and, uh, and, uh, the rest of his ringmaker people. But, um, but I think that, that, that's a little bit different. Though again, that, even that seems to be sort of distinctly different from what the dwarves do. Um, that is, we don't see the dwarves. You think of the stuff that the elves have made. The rings of power, the palantiri, the silmarils, even just these gems that, 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 uh, that Finrod has brought. Uh, and you compare that with the Nauglif ring. Again, this is the highest. This is the greatest. This is the most amazing thing the dwarves have ever made. And it's a setting for the elven gems. And in the end, it's going to be perfected when a Silmaril is going to be set in it later on. Now, you know, I, I mean, I'm not, I don't merely want to a slight dwarven craft, but, uh, but this is why it's sort of, as I said, it's sort of seeming to me different. Um, uh, Dave, welcome. You want to, you want to add something here? Mostly I just, I figured that the listeners didn't know what to do with themselves and they hadn't heard from me for like 45 <laughs> minutes. I do think there appears to be some sort of qualitative um, uh, difference between the, the sort of kinds of um, Brandon. I think it's Brandon uses the word technology in the text. I think that's a very interesting suggestion. Um, um, there seems to be something very different about particularly uh, the um, like when you compare the, the sort of technology of the dwarves to say the technology of the elves, particularly um, the Silmarils and later on the, the rings and such. There is a difference, I think. In, now, I mean, I agree that the rings of power are definitely seem a little bit more, a little bit more technological. Um, though, again, I mean, if you take sort of the, there's the rings of power and the palantiri. I mean, I'm not comparing what their functions are and what they do. Obviously, they do very different things. But when I mean, you think of dwarven craftsmanship, the only other thing I can think of, which is as okay, see, I'm really hesitating to use this word because uh, I think it's a really inappropriate word. Uh, and that is, I, I want to say that the elves are more creative or more original than the dwarves. That is, instead of just making beautiful things or like doing something that lots of people do, but doing it really well, uh, like the dwarves do, the, the, the elves are being, well, at least they're being more sub-creative, it seems. Uh, I mean, gems, nobody ever thought of gems before. What have the dwarves thought of that nobody thought of? I mean, the only thing that I can think of is mithril. Basically, and mithril isn't like isn't like a secret alloy that the dwarves make. They mine it. I mean, it's a, it's a special metal that they find and do cool things with. But even what they do with it is pretty normal. Like, sure, like a mithril a suit of mithril armor is pretty awesome. But its awesomeness is in the mithril itself, which again was just mined by the dwarves. The mithril from the dwarves is not like the silmarils from Feanor. Well, you just alienated all of your pro dwarf listeners. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I'm 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 I was gonna say, do you think there's a is there's is there a subtle difference between um creation and sub creation cre su sub creative um practices and arts and craftsmanship and technology? I mean from one sense those things are really all in all in the same um uh 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 in one sense those things are really quite similar, but maybe they're subtly different. I think the dwarves might say, yeah, sure, you know, like the, the awesomeness of a mithril coat is in the mithril, but we're the ones that figured out that you could make it into a coat that you could wear around and yeah. keep era, you know, um, orc um, spears from running you through and arrows from sticking in your chest and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, sure. Yes. Yes, that's true. Um, but... Uh... 
I think there is a difference, but I'm not I'm not sure that I'm really going to point to it well. I should explain, by the way, the reason I'm hesitant to use the word creative or original is that those words, well, those are very modern ideas, at least as connected with art. That is, the, the idea that a work of art or a work of craft, whatever it be, whether it be a work of literary craft or, or, or painting or whether it be of, uh, of, of, you know, the craft of hands or whatever, that, that it should be original, that it should be new, that it should be creative, that it should be unlike anything anybody has done before. That's a very modern obsession. Um, and it was not something that concerned people for a really long time. That is the, the, the passion to do something new, to break totally new ground. Um, and so I, that's why I was hesitating to use the word either original or creative, um, because it sort of seems that, like, I don't want it to sound like I'm just saying, like, the dwarves are so boring. I mean, they're just so, like, like oh, like, swords, mail, like, you know, that is so last week. Like, we have been doing swords and mail. And, like, sure, you're doing really nice swords and mail. And, oh, jewelry now. What a clever idea. Lots of people have been doing jewelry. Uh, I mean, I, I don't, I, I, I don't think that sliding things on that ground is, is sensible. And I don't think it's really appropriate. Um, because I don't see that as, as any kind of a sort of a core value of, um, of art in Tolkien's world, art or craft. Um, or both, but I do think that there's, I do think that there's a sense in which, I, again, I, I go back to the gems of the Noldor and the remark that even Aulay hadn't thought of this, you know, that they are bringing forth a new thing, that this is a piece of, this is a piece of sub-creation that just as under Iluvatar, the Valar in their song, in their improvisational parts in their song, brought about out of their own minds, which are, of course, derived from the mind of Iluvatar, out of their own minds, they brought forth these themes of music and they, you know, they, they adorned them and they contributed to this. So that when they come down here and they're, when the Valar are working and they're making the world happen, you know, they're making their own contributions out of their own, you know, out of the, the artistic gifts that Iluvatar has given them. And basically, the elves do that too. And with the Noldor, we can see they're making a contribution. They're making a contribution under the Valar, but that, that even the Valar themselves didn't, um, didn't, didn't make, didn't think of. My question, I guess, then is, do the dwarves do that? And I, I don't, I can't think of any examples. It seems like there's a subtle difference. I, um, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a half-hearted, uh, superficial stab at it that, that, to give you a chance to shoot it down, but, um, <laughs> could, could it have, be related in some way to practical utility? In other words, the dwarves tend to make things for, for, <laughs> for some sort of earthly purpose. They make, um, um, coats to wear and hammers to hammer with. And I guess the Noglamir maybe is uh maybe that doesn't have tremendous practical purpose whereas the impulse for fanor to create the uh Silmarils seemed to be uh, just uh, he didn't make them thinking well this will be excellent store you know backup storage for the light um or i want to make them so that i can light lit rooms or or even so that i think he just made them to make them yeah shoot it down yeah no i mean i and I think, it's not simply utility. That, that's really right. reductionist and terrible. Right. The dwarves right. make useful things. The elf make the elves make useless things. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And of course, even like you know, beautiful and useless versus just beautiful doesn't doesn't exactly work either. Um, as they're no. yeah. But uh, no, I you know I think that that one thing which um, 
which Brandon, I think, has brought up in the text, and um, which Chris kind of points to also over here. Um, the dwarves appreciate beauty within their own sphere, uh, Chris says. And I think that that's, that's really true. And what Brandon brought up as well was the Goodering Caves of Aglarond and Gimli's response there. And that, without question, Gimli's speech to Legolas about how awesome the caves under Helm's Deep are is, without question, the most, uh, like, the most unadulterated piece of dwarven aesthetics that we get anywhere. I mean, this is the one moment where we hear the dwarfs really sort of expressing their own aesthetic values. And we can see the passion of Gimli for the beauty of the part of the natural world that the dwarves are really a part of. And again, I think back to the Aule and Yavanna chapter um, and, the, you know, the, the, her reference to him at the end that, you know, your children will, will have little love for the things of my love, right? True, but of course the corollary to that is they're going to have great love for the things of Aule's love, uh, meaning the things of the earth and the things and, and the, the caves and the mountains. Um, even from Gimli's first comment upon their arrival at Helm's Deep that this country has has tough bones. He can feel them in his feet as he as, as he came up. Um, and then, of course, his raptures uh, at the Goodering Caves. Um, so clearly, they do appreciate beautiful things for the sake of beauty. And when Legolas responds to Gimli with making basically pr- assumptions that dwarves are going to be thinking only pragmatically, it's like, oh, the dwarves would mine that place. It's good that the dwarves don't know about it because they would, they would wreck it, you know, by mining it. And Gimli says, you don't understand. We would never do that. No dwarf would do that. Um, so that we can see that it really is more than just utility. Um, it's more than just for use. They do have a pure aesthetic angle to their craftsmanship. And so perhaps, you know, Gimli's establishment of the, of the, you know, of, of his, of his realm in the, in the glittering caves, um, you know, perhaps that's the, th- I mean, it seems a little bit funny to compare that to the Silmarils or, or to, uh, you know, the Rings of Power or something. But maybe in a sense, that is a kind of parallel. Laura, they're more alike than they uh, than they care to admit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Laura, you've been uh, wanting to say something for a while. Um, I was just thinking about uh, Gimli and, and Galadriel, actually. The gift that Galadriel gives Gimli is a lock of her hair. And Gimli takes it and looks at it and thinks, how can I set this? You know, what can I put it in? What kind of crystal? And he's obviously not making anything useful out of it. And yet he sort of wants to improve on the natural beauty a little bit. So maybe that's more of the dwarvish character. You know, they appreciate beauty, but they always want to sort of improve on that. But, you know, we were talking about do elves make useful things. Well, all of Galadriel's gifts, uh, you know, the the seed to Sam and uh, the file to uh, Frodo, those are all very useful things. I mean, they're beautiful, but they're also they're also useful. So, but they seem to be a little more natural and a little more um, less crafted, I guess you would call it. So, I don't know. It, it's kind of a it's kind of a subtle difference there, but maybe that speaks to the difference in mind between the dwarves and and the elves. No, I think that's very cool. I'm really glad that you brought up Goadriel and especially Gimli's response to the gift. Because I think we can see two things there. Of course, on the one hand, we get two really direct Silmaril echoes in Goadriel's, in the Goadriel's gift exchanges. 
One is her gift to Frodo, the file of Galadriel. is very Silmaril-like. You've got the, you know, he gets this crystal bottle that has the light from Arendelle's star in it, which of course is the light of the Silmaril. So, uh, you know, uh, what she gives Frodo is like the Silmaril at one remove, right? The light of the trees in the Silmaril contained in the file. So, um, so, so we already see this one fairly explicitly, um, Silmaril-esque gift. But, as you pointed out, Laura, Gimli's response, when Gimli asks for a strand of her hair, of Goadriel's hair, and she says, what will you do with it? And he says, I will, I, will, I will preserve it in imperishable crystal. Right? So that's his Silmarils. Again, and he gets three of them. Right? So he gets three strands of hair, which he's going to put in crystal. So those are going to be the dwarfish Silmarils. Right? Um, and instead of the light of the trees, you have uh, you have Goadriel's hair, the strands of Goadriel's hair in the crystal. And the thing is, is that is, this is not an accidental connection at all. In fact, uh, in one of his later essays, Tolkien talks about this and he expands upon some of the Silmarillion things. And he actually said that Goad, the significance of this moment, you'll remember in the Fellowship of the Ring that the, you know, the, the, the people kind of gasp in Kelegorn. <laughs> Kelleborn rather looks at uh, at at Gimli and is like shocked that Gimli would ask this. It's uh, the, the dwarves all seem to re- or the the elves all seem to react like Gimli has uh, said something really shocking by asking for a strand of her hair. And the um the the thing that we can the 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 thing that Tolkien said earlier on was that actually that Galadriel's hair is gold and is gold mixed with silver. It has both gold and silver in it, and that Feanor uh in seeing Galadriel's hair, got the idea of the Silmarils from her hair. Like, ah, look, it is the light, you know, that that her hair was like the light of both trees mingled together. Um, And that, you know, in thinking about Galadriel's hair, he was like, hmm, Silmarils, how would I take the light? And I put the light of both trees in crystal. And that Feanor asked for for Galadriel's hair, you know, can I have a few strands of your hair to work with? And Galadriel says, no. Um, and, and turns him down. And so then here's this dwarf asking for what she refused to Feanor himself, and she says yes. Um, so, I mean, I think that I, that's, you know, so yes, of course, of course, that Goadriel's hair in imperishable crystal, if it's, especially if it's really imperishable, there you go, the dwarven Silmarils. Um, now even there, I think that we can see a kind of difference between, um, we, we we can see a kind of difference between the dwarven Silmarils and and uh, and the elven Silmarils, the original ones. Um, that again, I still think that there's that you know, Gimli's are for remembrance in ways in which uh, Feanor were not. I mean, we think back to the discussion we had about Feanor and the Silmarils and and his pride and how you know he became sort of obsessed with his his sort of obsessed with his own creations. Um, and you know, whereas he was not just saying. Hey, I want to preserve the light to remember it because I'm just focusing on the light. Um, you know, we're told that he, he, he forgets that the light within them is not his own, right? Um, whereas Gimli is never thinking of himself and always thinking of Galadriel when he's looking at his stuff. Um, uh, Chris, you had uh, a really good point that you just typed in all caps that, I, that I'd like to let you make, uh, sort of a final, uh, response to the dwarf and elf thing. Well, I, uh, almost feel my moment has passed, but. <laughs> Um, I, I guess we've talked about this before that the, the, the Silmarillion, these works are, are 
were written by elves, which, and so they don't really understand what, where the dwarves are coming from. So you, you talked about uh, uh, Gimli's reaction to the caves. It was such a revelation to, the, to, to, to Legolas that, oh, I had no idea that, that uh, dwarves had this kind of uh, aesthetic appreciation. Um, I guess that was one of the points. The other thing I thought that, that strikes me is that the dwarves, oh, how to say it, they almost, you know, like Aula, they just love to the creative process or, or the, the craft. I think we talked about crafting. They they like the doing almost more than the end product, it seems to me. I mean, that just kind of occurred to me. I don't know if, uh, if I'm right on target there, but uh, that's how it kind of strikes me. So it, it's a little different emphasis than the elves where, you know, they make these great things, but the dwarves just love to be making all the time. Yeah, I can't, that's really, that's, that's really interesting. Um, that, the, the possibility of that distinction, that is the distinction between the delight in the thing made and the delight in the making. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe. I'm not sure, but I think that's, that's possible. Just a thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Uh, Mike, go ahead. I really like that point about the dwarves, you know, delighting in in the things themselves and the making of things. And I was thinking sort of on a spectrum, if you go on beyond dwarves, then you start talking about something like dragons where they, you know, they're just hoarding things for their own sake and they, they can never use any of it in any way. So it's sort of like further down the spectrum in terms of how these different races, I guess if you're going to call dragons a race, interact with objects and possess things and either use them or don't use them. Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, if you want to think about the, you know, the, the difference between the delight in the thing made and the delight in the making, um, the dragons are clearly like on the opposite end of the spectrum from, uh, from dwarves in that sense, right? Um, though, of course, I mean, we do see some similarity. I don't think it's quite fair in the end to say that dwarves really only delight in the making. We do see them, uh, of course, you know, back to Thor and Oakenshield, uh, you know, and his falling under the dragon sickness and his obsession with the gold. Um, but, but, you know, even there, he, that was, that was corruption. I mean, he was, he was being corrupted in that way. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's certainly not showing Thorin at his essential or at his best. But, um, anyway, um, I, but yeah, the, the, the dragon certainly, and we'll see a little bit more of them later, though we, we don't get really the full, uh, relationship between dragons and treasure kind of treatment here, um, in, uh, in, in Silmarillion. And we will see Glaurung sitting on a big pile of treasure later on, but, uh, we won't get that full, th that's not going to be the primary thing that we're going to get with Glaurung, uh, his relationship with treasure, I mean, um, but, uh, Anyway, it's, um, it's, it's, it's certainly worth, uh, worth thinking about. Um, let's talk about, let's talk about Manwe and, and Olmo. Jack, you wanted to talk about, uh, Manwe giving aid to the elves? Yeah, um, so in this chapter we have a couple of, uh, interventions by the Valar. Uh, in particular, um, when Fingon is, uh, rescuing Maedros, um, mm -hmm. um, he sends up a to Manway saying, uh, or whatever, and Manway answers and sends the eagle, etc., uh, to help out. 
as soon as that happened, um, I was scratching my head because I was thinking back to the, the Doom of Mandos. If I could just read that line, it, you know, it didn't happen too long ago. Um, Tears unnumbered ye shall shed, and the valor will fence Valinor against you and shut you out, so that not even the echo of your lamentation shall pass over the mountains. And so here we have Van Way, like, like, seems like two weeks later, coming to the rescue of not just any elf, but the son of Feanor. So, you know, did, is, you know, what's going on here? Is Van Way throwing Mandos under the bus here? Is, does it weaken the, the curse? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point, I think. I mean, f- for me, one of the main things that I always take from that moment, uh, that is Manway's intervention with Fingen and Mythros. Uh, and by the way, uh, side note, um, this chapter begins to highlight one of the, one of the, probably the most significant pronunciation error that Martin Shaw makes in the unabridged audio recording. Um, he continually calls Feanor's eldest son Maithros. Um, it should be Maithros, A-E in, 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 in Elvish is pronounced, it's pronounced I, not A. Um, so Maithros and the, uh, the, the nephew of Turgon, um, who's going to get his own chapter in a, in a, in a couple of weeks is Myglin, not Maglin. But, um, anyway, that's, I said that's a, it's one of the persistent errors that Martin Shaw makes in that recording. And one, one of the primary reasons that I like his recording much less than Robert Inglis's recording of The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Anyway, sorry. End side note. Um, Manway's, the primary thing that I get from the, from, uh, you know, one of the primary points I would make based on Manway's intervention, um, with, uh, with Fingen and Mithras there is simply that if we are tempted to think now or later that the Valar really just aren't paying attention, you know, that, that the Valar are not, uh, you know, they've totally, you know, they've totally separated themselves. They're just leaving Middle-earth to itself. Um, they're not looking, they're not caring, and Olmo is like going around behind the backs of everybody else, and he's like the rogue Valar who still cares about Middle-earth. It's tempting to see it that way at times, but I don't think that that's actually the case. And this is the plainest example of that. I mean, we're not just saying like, and someone prays to Manway, and then like eventually the thing that they prayed for comes to pass, showing that Manway was probably paying attention. I mean, this is completely instantaneous um the the you know a, a, a dramatic direct and instantaneous response manway is obviously paying a lot of attention to what's going on here um and he receives messages we've heard about you know and thought a little bit about man or omo being brought messages from all of the streams and the waters of middle earth but manway gets messages too uh from the birds and of course from his sight with which he can see uh, from Tiniquitil, the mountain, one of the other words that Martin Chavez pronounces. Um, and, uh, anyway, so I think that that's, uh, at the very least, I think there's more that we can get from it than that. Um, and so, I mean, Jack, going on to sort of your more significant question, is he undermining the curse? I don't think so, exactly. Well, I mean, I guess, in, in a sense, you could say that. Um, I mean, if what Manway's uh, sort of job here was, or if what his goal was, was to basically increase the suffering of the Noldor, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna set myself to making you people as miserable as possible, and I'm going to visit your crimes upon your head at every opportunity. Well, obviously there were worse things that could. I mean, think of what was just about to happen. What was just about to happen? Fingen was just drawing his bow to shoot his close friend dead. Which is sounds like exactly what the curse of Mandos is dooming them to. 
um, you know, that, that friend shall die at the hand of friend, and there, you, one of you is going to betray the other. Um, and so it seems like, yeah. Um, now, it's not that, of course, obviously, Fingen isn't betraying Mybros here and shooting him, but this is an act of friendship and kindness and, and not an act of betrayal. But again, the pattern would seem to be like, yep, curse of Mando's at work again, one elf slaying another. But, of course, this is the moment, this is the biggest moment of one of the Noldor trying to, trying to, um, trying to go against the curse, trying to undo the momentum of the curse in a sense. And Fingen succeeds in doing that. This is Fingen's greatest moment. This is the thing that Fingen really achieves. Uh, and that is reconciling the sons of Feanor and the sons of Fingolfin and Finarfin. And I think that you can see Manway... The, the two other things that we can see from Manway here, I think, is one, basically, his his endorsement of that. The curse of Mandos does not necessarily reflect, this is what I want to happen. I'm hoping to see as much treachery, betrayal, and friend-killing friend as possible. Um, you know, if if that were the case, then, yeah, I mean, he would have sit back chuckling at this moment as Fingen is drawing his bow. So, obviously, that's not what he's really, um, I was about to say shooting for. Um, that would be inappropriate. Um, that's not what he's looking for. Um, and I think it also certainly does kind of qualify his relationship with the curse. In other words, the curse of Mandos, this is not just the Valar saying, you've been bad, and so we're going to punish you very badly. But rather, um, you know, basically, um, the Valar saying to the Noldor, you have rebelled, you have done wickedness, and we are here to tell you that, you know, not exactly what goes around comes around, not like in a karmic sense, but basically, you are going to reap the fruit of your own actions. And by and large, we're going to let that happen. You wanted to leave, you'll be able to leave. They're exiled? Yeah, they left of their own accord. And as a result, they're exiled. They, um, you know, they, are, what they're going to be facing betrayal. Friend is going to kill friend. Well, yeah, because they don't trust each other anymore because of the kinslaying. Is now, you know, now that the whole kinslaying concept is on the table, uh, and then the betrayal, uh, with the ships at, at, at Lascar, they're not going to trust each other anymore. So, um, so the, the curse isn't, isn't a large part, it seems, at least in its initial conception, a self-perpetuating thing. That is, it is the fruit of their own actions. Manway is not, it's not something that he inflicts on them. I'm going to make you do bad things or receive bad things. And here we can see what seems to be an affirmation. And one of the only times this is going to happen, Manway is not going to do much interceding in the rest of the history of Beleriand, but he does here. And where he does is at this moment, um, is at this moment where, um, where Fingen is taking the big step to go in the opposite direction of the curse of Feanor. And the results of his action are not doomed to failure. The results of his action are su- are a success, and they bring about reconciliation and reuniting. Um, and that's good, and Manway seems to approve of that. Um, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that that's a really, that's a really crucial moment. Any, any, anybody else have anything they wanted to say about, uh, about Fingen and Mithros? This being one of those, you know, 10 or 15 enormously important stories that get, uh, thrown out in this chapter here. Yeah. Uh, Dave, go ahead. Sure. I, I just think it's particularly interesting that, uh, the sort of, the way they find each other is through song. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, <laughs> I don't have uh, more to add. 
to add about that. I just think that's really, really interesting and cool, and there must be more to it than that uh, that I haven't uh, um, worked out yet. But uh, but it's very it's very cool, and particularly a song about Valinor, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. And I think that that's um, that that's a, a pretty that that's the important thing that I was going to point to. Um, that is, it's not just that they're saying this is on page uh, page one ten. Um, in the Houghton Mifflin trade paperback that I use. Um, then in defiance of the orcs, end of the top paragraph, then in defiance of the orcs, who cowered still in the dark vaults beneath the earth, he took his harp and sang a song of Valinor that the Noldor made of old, before strife was born among the sons of Finway, and his voice rang in the mournful hollows that had never heard, bo- that had never heard before aught save cries of fear and woe. Thus Fingen found what he sought, for suddenly above him, far and faint, his song was taken up, and a voice answering called to him. Um, here's a cool thing about the singing. What do we associate song with so far? Well, subcreation, right? I mean, we certainly, even though we're already on, uh, even though we're all the way up to page 100 by now, we should still remember, of course, the music of the Ainur, um, especially since we, we have the, you know, the reference to the Noldor having made this song. Um, and what is it of? The song is a song of Valinor in peace. Valinor in unity, Valinor in communion, in in community. And what happens? Mithros joins with him in singing. And what happens as a result? Community, union. Uh, like that, that. That is, they do make what they sing through their song. Um, that it's not just that the song is the means to do this, but that um, in a sense, and it's you know, it, you could say it's a kind of an accidental sense, but I don't think so. Um, their song does does make the thing that they sing, um, which is a kind of return to Valinorian pre-Feanorian peace um, and unity, and uh, or at least pre-bad Feanorian um, peace. Uh, yes, I mean I think that that's uh, that's a pretty cool thing. Their, their song there I think is definitely important, especially when contrasted. Um, with the, the cries of fear and woe, which is all you ever usually hear in those parts. Um, that's sort of serves, serves further to emphasize the, the unity and peace and beauty. Go ahead, Dave. Well, for anyone who's read Lord of the Rings, this should immediately make us think of Frodo and Sam, um, in the Tower of Kira. Absolutely. Dungle, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and this, and that's the thing. <clears throat> I, the thing that I just said about the sort of them, Sort of making or making or subcreating um, peace and harmony through their song here never occurred to me before because I I, I usually think forward instead of back at this moment um, forward to Baron and Luthien and forward to Frodo and Sam um, like I uh, uh, like I I talked about in my uh, Kalamazoo talk on typology uh, which I posted last summer. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's my normal train of thought when I'm in, um, this, this passage. But I do think that we should also be looking backwards, um, back to the music of the Ainur and thinking about sort of music as we have seen music be used so far. So I think that that's, uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, Laura, you had wanted to say something too? Uh, well, I was going to mention the music, but also, uh, I just wanted to say it's just heartbreaking that this scene is not more, more, Played out, it you know you get a couple of paragraphs. It's it's almost you could almost miss it if you weren't doing a very close reading, you know. Just like the death of Feanor, it seems almost anticlimactic. It's like okay, is, is that it? You know, you could miss it if you blinked, basically. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. No, I, the the capture of Mythros and then the rescue of Mythros by Fingon. Um, it just begs for for epic poetry, doesn't it? I mean, that would be this would this would be a fantastic episode in an epic poem. I think they should figure out a way to get the scene in the Hobbit movie coming up. <laughs> that would be good. But you know, it's funny. I've had a couple people recently ask me. Like, well, you know, do you think after they're done with the Hobbit movie, they're going to do a Silmarillion movie? Um, to which my answer is, no, I don't think they will do that. Um, at least not while Christopher Tolkien lives. But, um, but I, I anyway, um, there's certainly, and I can't say there aren't moments that wouldn't work really well, though. Uh, and this is certainly one that I that I do think would. Um, but. Uh, but yeah, yeah, Brandon. I was gonna say about music. It's like I remember one of the lectures you were talking about. Um, it's funny that you know someone who's about to go into battle sings, you know, brings out his deadly weapon, the harp. You know, um, <laughs> yes. but you, you know, you hear a lot in this chapter about music, about trumpets playing, and the power and the sound of mu- and like how music. And then you, later on, I don't want to spoil alert, but. Um, you know, Luthien and her song and the power of the song. Okay, you talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, you've, you're a musician, so, you know. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is, uh, is really, I'm here to, you know, to give, uh, uh, a shout out to, uh, to Jordan's favorite guy and the comment that Jordan made in the text earlier on about it, it's sort of seeming like Fingolfin actually makes the sunrise, you know, when, when his, when his trumpets sound. Um, you know, that's, that, it's, I, I, I don't, I mean, from what we're told in the previous chapters, it does not, in fact, seem like Fingolfin caused the rising of the sun. However, um, he does, as Brandon just pointed out in the text, flowers do spring up at his feet. Now, again, that's because the sun rose, and we know that the, the flowers are responding to the sun. However, um, it, it, it seems like not a coincidence. Um, remember the effect of the sun rising on Morgoth and, every, uh, and, 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 and all of his people. Um, and so there's at least this coincidental conjunction of Fingolfin's army, which has made it through the Helcaraxa and, you know, has, they've accomplished this, this, this amazing feat, one of the big amazing feats, the, the crossing of the Helcaraxa, and they are, they are coming down, and then at their trumpets, the sun rises, the flowers spring up, and Morgoth cowers in fear and hides under, you know, deep underground. Uh, under his fortress. So that's, um, I, I mean, again, it's like they, they don't seem to be, it's, it's not actually caused by Fingolfin, but at the same time, I don't think it's entirely an accident either. Um, and I, I think that that's, uh, that that's, that's really pretty powerful. Jordan, go ahead. Well, I think I agree it's really powerful, and I actually just kind of wanted to read that part because I love it so much. Uh, but it's the, yeah, but yeah, it's the host so. of Fingolfin Mithrim. Okay. Uh, but as the host of Fingolfin marched into Mithrim, the sun rose flaming in the west, and Fingolfin unfurled his blue and silver banners and blew his horns, and flowers sprang beneath his marching feet, and the ages of the stars were ended. At the uprising of the great light, the servants of Morgoth fled to Angband, Fingolfin passed unopposed through uh, through the fastness of Dordedaloth, while his foes hid beneath the earth. Then the elves smote upon the gates of Angband, and the challenge of their trumpets shook the towers of Thangaradra, and Madros heard that his torn ride aloud, but his voice was lost in the echo of the stone. I always have loved that part and thought, like, how awesome, like, what a better way to, like, bring your army into the earth than the sun rising behind you, trumpets playing, banners unfurling, and flowers springing at your feet, and the enemy fleeing from you in terror. It's almost like Fingolfin is the best character in the book. 
<laughs> it's it's almost like that, Jordan. You're right. No, and of course, that I would draw attention to, thinking back to where we started, think of the contrast between Fingolfin's approach to Angband and Feanor's approach to Angband. Right, Feanor comes as the as in his own eyes anyway the conquering hero, the single-handed conquering hero. He didn't need Fingolfin, so he leaves them behind. He doesn't need his own armies. He's left his own armies behind, and he's going single-handedly to beat Morgoth up. Right, and he sees it from a distance, and he and he he knows that he can't take it, but he doesn't care, and he's still going to spit out his curses at Morgoth as he dies, and tell his sons to keep doing the impossible, trying to do the impossible thing. Fingolfin, with his whole army, you know, in unity, marches straight up to the gates of Angban. Um, but he sees, yeah, this is, there's no point in this, and immediately turns away and goes and, like, looks after his people and does the prudent thing. It's not like he has a moment of repentance like Feanor, because he doesn't need to repent for nearly so much as Feanor does. Um, but certainly he reacts with wisdom. Um, but yeah, that, this, the image of, Feanor's mad fey solo rush towards Angband contrasted with the, you know, sort of the, the steady and triumphant march of Fingolfin right up to the gates of Angband there is, I think, really uh, um, a, just a, a, a perfect little sort of character contrast between the two of them. Um, uh, uh, Brandon, go ahead. You, I think you would wanted to add something about the, the music when we started talking about Fingolfin here. Um... No, I didn't. I already um, just say that I think that just music is a uh, really great chapter, and it seems like um, uh, just it's funny that someone going into battle would bring out a harp, but yet there is power in music, and you see this throughout the entire. I mean, the world was created, the universe is created through music. I mean, I wonder what kind of music it is, but it's just. Um, it's just it's interesting to kind of include music that is so powerful to shatter you know whole armies and you know so on and, and be heard for quite some time and I also wanted to touch on how um in a moment I think it is maybe it's Finrod and Figolfin who cries out to manway and man or and, no, Finrod maybe and manway sends the east they pretty much assume it's a u catastrophe so would you say that's a u catastrophic moment? Yeah, definitely. I mean, <clears throat> especially because there's an eagle involved. So that uh, pretty much by definition uh, makes that you catastrophic. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, definitely. Uh, we, and I think what we see there also is a foretaste of the big U catastrophe that's coming. Of course, the first age is going to end with the big old U catastrophe, the biggest U catastrophe in history. Um, in a sense, even bigger than, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very different kind of catastrophe than we get at the end of the Lord of the Rings at the end of the Third Age, but, um, the one at the end of the First Age, you have to admit, is even more spectacular than the catastrophe at the end of the Third Age. We will more on when we get to it, but, um, uh, but anyway, um, what we have here is a foretaste of that. And, um, you know, I talked, you know, I mentioned just now and, uh, I talked in the, in the recording I made last summer, um, and my, my Kalamazoo talk about the, the you know, the, those, the ways that this passage anticipates Baron and Luthien and it anticipates Frodo and Sam. Um, so we get these foretastes, but in, in, in a deeper sense, um, though you don't have the exact parallels that we get with those other scenes here, um, we, this is, it, it most directly anticipates, uh, Arendel, um, and the final catastrophe. Arendel 
is going to do, like, the big Fingon impression. That is, he's going to make the self-sacrificial journey for the sake of union and the sake of mercy. Um, and he is going to be making sort of, the, you know, he's going to be making the big, um, you know, petition and intercession on the part of everybody. Um, and I think, you know, what Fingon does is a picture of that to come. And we saw Manway respond the first time, and we'll see Manway respond the second time. Um, <clears throat> so yes, it's a little you catastrophe um, that saves Mithros, uh and is going is anticipating the big you catastrophe um, that's going to happen later. Now, I, you know, as usual, I don't want to say too much about that yet because we haven't gotten there yet, and it'll be much more powerful when we do actually get to Aerendel. But let's make sure that when we get to Aerendel, we remember Fingon and come back to this because I think that that's uh, that that's a pretty that, that that's pretty cool. Um, anyway. Um, good, good, let's see, hmm, other things, other, other, I mean, goodness, there are still so many things we haven't touched on, um, we haven't talked much about Gondolin and, uh, and, um, Nargothrond, but that's okay, I actually don't mind saving that, um, because of course we're gonna, we're gonna, we have, we're gonna have a lot more to say, um, about Gondolin and Nargothrond, in fact, um, we might as well save that for next week when we look at of Beleriand and its realms, um, which is possibly the most notorious chapter uh, for first-time readers of the Silmarillion. Um, uh, the readers of the Silmarillion, the first-time readers of the Silmarillion who make it through the Valaquenta um, usually hit the wall uh, in <laughs> next chapter. Um, yeah, as Matt says, the geography chapter. Um, so why don't we save uh, the Olmo discussion, you know, the dreams from Olmo discussion, um, for there because we'll we'll be talking about Nargothrond uh, and Gondolin a little bit more next time. So uh, so let's save that. Anything else that people would like to cover? Oh, uh, yeah, uh, Laura, Laura, go ahead. Uh, you had a a Fingolfin point that uh, um, that you'd wanted to make. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, Fingolfin. Uh shows a little bit of pride here towards the end of the chapter, where he boasts that, Saved by treason among themselves, Morgoth could never again burst from the leaguer of the Eldar, nor come upon them at unawares. So that's a, that's a, little, bit of a, it's a little bit of a boast and a little bit of a, uh, you know, a, a foretelling, I guess, of, of something that uh, might happen. But, I mean, why tempt fate? Why even say something like that? Yeah, I mean, now, I mean, I still think one thing that you can still say, um, when Fingolfin boasts out of pride, it's still so different from Feanor boasting out of pride, right? What does Feanor get proud of? Well, himself and the stuff that he makes. What does Fingolfin get proud of? His people, right? Um, the whole group, the, you know, their community. Uh, collective. you know, he is convinced that they, the Noldor, all working together, that the way that they are, they are all, you know, there's no way that Morgoth can ever overcome them. Um, and now, you know, on the one hand, they, he has some justification for this confidence in that there have now been three battles, two main battles and one lesser battle, and it's just, and they've not even been, they've not even been, uh, close. You know, I mean, they're, 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 um, I mean, the, the, the elves are just stomping on the orcs. There's, there's, there's not even any competition. So, I mean, he certainly, you know. Go ahead. Uh, do you think he thinks that there might be some strife among the elves, and and that's going to bring him down? Do you think he's 
has some knowledge of that, or do you think he doesn't think that's possible, so that, that Morgoth really isn't going to be able to, to do anything? Well, I mean, again, it's easy to see how you can think, like, look, you know, the day is not going to come when these orcs are going to be able to defeat us in battle. You can see how that would make a certain amount of sense, but certainly um, the one way in which in which Fingolfin has, is getting just a little bit Feanorian here is that he is um, he is underrating Morgoth and overrating again not himself personally in the way that Feanor would, but all of them collectively. Um, just as just I mean, you, you think of the you know this is the towering arrogance of Feanor sprinting after the orcs, hoping to catch Morgoth, even if he did catch Morgoth in an open camp. What is what's his plan? Like I'm gonna single-handedly take out a Valar? I don't think so. Um, you know, and and re- we remember the moment uh, at Formanos when he slams the door of his house in the face of the mightiest creature in Arda. Um, and you know, Fingolfin too here seems to be forgetting that um, you know they're not just dealing. It's there's there's more than orcs here. You know, they're not just dealing with, uh, it is, it is no brigand or orc chieftain that they are dealing with here. Um, and he's got, uh, he's got some more things going on now, of course. Um, those of you who are familiar with what's going to happen in the next five chapters or so can see the ominous for, uh, uh, foreboding and foreshadowing in my comments to challenging Morgoth to combat and what a crazy idea that would be. But we'll, we'll get to that more too <laughs> when we get there. Um, Dave, go ahead. Well, I would just toss in, so you, you pointed it out that the, the, the significant difference between him and Feanor is the fact that he's proud of, of not himself specifically, but his people, the Noldor. But, uh, you know, the thing I would toss out there is Noldor, the, uh, the guys who are in exile who, um, were cursed by, uh, Mandos on their way out, uh, and specifically who were told that, uh, not only are you guys cursed, but you're cursed to suffering from a, uh, uh, you know, a chronic problem of treason and backstabbing and your plans falling apart and stuff. And what does this guy say? He sits there and says, there's really, you know, there's really nothing bad could happen to us. We couldn't possibly lose except <laughs> through treason. Uh, you, you think, <laughs> yeah. as he said that, he would have remembered Mandos's parting words as he's on his way. There's really, you know, there's nothing that could beat us except trees, treason. Uh-oh. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wait. So it's like, oh yeah, but and what are the odds of that? I mean, come on. Yeah. 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 I yeah. mean, we've only murdered a bunch of our own elves already. <laughs> we've already we've right. only been abandoned by Feanor already. Uh you would think that that maybe he would have been <laughs> just seems like a really kind of uh dumb thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you yeah, might have been caught up in yeah, the moment. Sort of. or, or I wonder, <laughs> the one thing I wonder, though, is it perhaps we're to understand this as a little bit of a prophecy, almost? Well, but see, the thing is, is that, I mean, certainly there are things that it could be seen to be prophetic of, but not act, not, not really. Um, when the leaguer of Angband is broken... Um, that is, you know, so this is what has been set up. This is the longest period of peace. You know, we're told that the land is never wholly at peace, but still, this is going to be the longest period of peace. This is, this is, this is the time. It's like the bliss of Valinor, right? For Beleriand. Um, 
when they have Morgoth, they think, penned up. Um, there are going to be two major battles after this which are going to go very badly. Um, uh, the, the, the Dagor Bragalach, the Battle of Sudden Flame, which is the one that's going to happen next. And then, uh, the Near Nith Arnoidiad, the, the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. The Battle of Unnumbered Tears, that's going to go bad because of treachery. The Dagor Bragalach is not. That is going to be Fingolfin's boast, well, not coming back to bite him, but being disproven. Um, what is going to end up breaking this peace that, Fingol- that Fingolfin is here so proud of is, in fact, simple, raw power of Morgoth. Um, that there's going to come a time, it's going to be in a few hundred years, but there's going to come a time when Morgoth is basically going to, you know, the, the fine day is going to come when Morgoth says, you really think you can hold back one of the Valar? Try this, blam! And, you know, and, and he's going to, it's going to be a pretty momentous blam when it comes. So, um, so in other words, it's not going to be treachery that's going to break the leaguer. Um, it's going to be Morgoth just pounding the stuffing out of him in the battle of, of, of sudden flame. Um, now that's not the final turning point, though it will be for, for, for Fingolfin himself. So again, more on this when we actually see, um, when we actually see that, see that happen. Um, Mike, you wanted to, to add something to this? I was actually going to talk, ask a question about something unrelated back to Fingolfin and the trumpets. I don't know if we want to go back there though. Sure, sure, go ahead. Just, uh, I, I'm also a, a trumpet player and I'm kind of obsessed with color in, in the books and, um, Fingolfin is associated with the colors blue and with the silver trumpets. And in the Lord of the Rings movie, I don't know if it's an actual line from the book, but it, at least in the movie, there's a line where Boromir says, uh, have you ever been called home by the sound of silver trumpets? And if it's not in the book, yeah. maybe it should have been in the book, because I think that's a nice <laughs> echo back to, the, the like, the silver trumpets have an especially pure and good association in in both of the books. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, it's not in, it's not in the books, but I agree. It, that is, uh, that, both that scene, that is, that exchange between Boromir and Aragorn, um, is definitely, uh, it's one of my favorite added bits that isn't in the book. Um, I like that a lot. Um, and yeah, no, the, 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 the silver of his trumpets, and of course the parallels that that is explicitly establishing between him and Telperion, the Tree of Silver, and therefore also the rising of the moon, um, which rises, we're told, right as they leave the Hellcare Access. So you've got, as soon as they arrive, as soon as they step foot on Middle-earth, on the shores of Beleriand, the moon rises, and as soon as they march into Mithrim, the sun rises, um, and they blow their silver trumpets. So, um, so yeah, yeah, that's... that's uh, um, I, I, I do think the silver trumpets are, 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 are pretty cool in that way. Uh, let's see, Brandon, you had, uh, you had one other thing there? I remember C.S. Lewis, uh, or maybe was Tolkien in his letters, talking about how the importance of saying Argent. I mean, maybe, maybe, we could, I don't know if we had style time yet, but we can go into style time. Why you Hey, we didn't do style time. Silver, and Tolkien says something about, or C.S. Lewis says something about, yeah. So, I mean, you know, and I also wanted to know about, um, what, what's up with host? Why are they saying the host of, uh, Morgoth or the host of Fëanor's, Fëanor's host? Host. How is host being? So, uh, let's style time and uh maybe you can just comment on that. Yeah, no, great. Um the uh of the two 
host is the the host is fairly simple in that that's sort of you know the archaic word just for um, um, for army basically is the way in which that's being used. Um, what I am doing right now is I am trying to come up with a theory on argent versus silver, which I haven't thought of. Well, rather, I have a theory and I'm testing it. Let's see. What I'm doing right now is looking up both words in the OED, because that's what I thought. Okay, I have an answer for your silver versus argent question. Argent is from French, ultimately back to Latin. Silver is an Anglo-Saxon word. There you go. Um, uh, so that's why I think Tolkien would prefer silver to argent, in fact. Um, now, I don't think that it's therefore necessarily true that... Um, uh, yeah, by the way, shout out to the OED. Uh, if you, if you have any access to the Oxford English Dictionary, it is by like a factor of a hundred the best dictionary to use. No other dictionary possibly compares, uh, to it in its etymological usefulness and its, you know, the, the etymologies that it gives and the, the, the historical record of how the word has been used in various ways in various times. Absolutely unbelievable. Um, but anyway, so, um, so, Silver might seem sort of simple. It might even possibly seem more modern. Argent seems like the more archaic word. Um, but actually it is, um, argent is a much more recent word. Um, because it's a, because it's a French word. Um, silver. Silver is the old word. Um, in English, anyway. It's the old, um, you know, it's, it's from a, a, a common, um, it's in, it's, 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 there, there are words that are analogs of silver, um, uh, sailor uh, uh, in, in, in Anglo-Saxon, Sailor. Um, there are analogs in all of the Germanic languages. I mean, it seems to have been an old Germanic word. Uh, so, um, so that's by far of the two of them, the more ancient word. And so therefore, I think probably that alone would, uh, um, would explain why he would, uh, be inclined towards that. Um, anyway, so that's my, that's my answer about silver. And I think that that's, it's actually something which sort of expand, you know, in the, in the style time mode, um, kind of expanding on that a little bit. Um, the thing that one is tempted to say about the style of the Silmarillion and the word choice of the Silmarillion is that, you know, it's very, it's very, um, it's very archaic. Um, it's very, uh, sort of formulaic. And so there's a tempt, a temptation, I think, for us to sort of see or expect these kind of bigger words um, and fancier sounding words. But what he's not doing is making it... He's he's not going out of his way to make it sound ornate. Um, he is making it archaic, but of course, as in a case like this, um, making it sound archaic. Um, making it making it be, in fact, more archaic uh, to, to have greater antiquity um, is to... Uh, is sometimes to use much simpler words, um, quite common words, because of course many of our very common words are Anglo-Saxon words. And in the Silmarillion, he always really wanted to use old words. Anyway, um, um, good, good. Well, we should uh, we should probably wrap up. The two major things that we haven't talked about that I think of off the top of my head are, as I already mentioned, the Gondolin and Nargothron thing, also the political relations between the Noldor and uh, the Sindar with um Fingal. But that too I think we could save for the geography chapter. That might be a good way to talk about um and to incorporate that discussion into some of the things that we see uh in the next chapter. Um okay. So unless anyone has any last final things, uh I think uh, we're pretty much done for tonight. This is Matt Shaw and that is it for this time. Join us for our next episode in which we discuss that perennial crowd pleaser of Beleriand and its realms. 
Farewell and remember, if more of us valued food and cheer above hoarded gold, it would be a much merrier world. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.